0: Here, the last few weeks uh, in the gatherings, we've been working our way through this short mini-series on the problem of evil. So before we dig a bit deeper on that tonight, I just wanted to offer you guys some recommended reading on the topic. We're going to try to do this more at the beginning of every series. First off is a book that's been uh, massively formational for uh, myself and for a lot of the theology of Van City, God at War by Gregory A. Boyd, and it has a sister volume, Satan and the Problem of Evil, if you want to dig really really deep. If uh, you don't want to read like 800 pages of academic stuff, you can read a very uh, helpful, smaller reader version uh, by the same author, Is God to Blame? And then this week, to write this teaching, I read this book by Timothy Keller, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And there's, there's a lot that I don't, uh, me personally, agree with, uh, with uh, Mr. Keller there. But uh, this book was massively helpful, and it's really healthy to read across different few points and perspectives. And then as always, uh, Dr. Wright, who can complain about Dr. Wright, evil and the justice of God is a really helpful and different take on the thing to round out the whole thing. So if you guys feel like it and you like to read books, you should read books. It's important for your brains. So think about it. And those, uh, I recommend all of those very much. Now with that said, let's read once more from the book of Job in chapter 23, beginning in verse 2. This is Job talking about God in the midst of suffering. Even today, my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him, God. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. Would he vigorously oppose me? No, he would not press charges against me. There the upright can establish their innocence before him, and there I would be delivered forever from my judge. But if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I don't find him. When he's at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold." In the immortal words of Sideshow Bob, existence is suffering. No matter what precautions you might take in order to avoid this lurking phantom of suffering, suffering will inevitably find you. No matter how hard you work or how healthy you become or how wonderful your family is, something will inevitably mess it up in some way. No no amount of planning or finance or attempted control can stave off bereavement or sickness or betrayal or financial ruin or an innumerable host of troubles and tragedies from creeping into your life like hostile invaders. And life, we know, is fragile, forever subject to forces beyond our control. And on a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone will drop to zero. And for many of you, Suffering is not currently visiting. You're doing great. And even so, each and every warm body in the building fits neatly into one of the following three categories. You're in a season of hardship right now, and so you know suffering quite well. Someone you know might be in a season of hardship, so it's familiar and it's close to home. Or, if neither of those are you, you or someone you know will be in a season of hardship somewhere on the not-so-distant horizon. How then do we as disciples, as apprentices of Jesus of Nazareth, brace ourselves for the inevitability of suffering? Now, uh, to frame tonight's teaching, let's spend a moment talking about this concept of worldview. There are at least five different worldview interpretations of pain and suffering in the world. First, there is uh, the Hindu worldview if you like and here we find a concept we often call karma the basic idea is that you get what you deserve you deserve what you get what goes around comes around in sociology this is called a moralistic view because suffering is understood as a byproduct of morality or a lack of morality Next up, we have the Buddhist worldview, and all suffering and pain flow from desire. You, you, you suffer because you want stuff. Thus, he or she who eliminates desire eliminates suffering, and to do that, you've got to follow the four noble troth- truths of the Buddha, because all life is suffering. The cause of suffering is desire. Suffering ends only when desire is extinguished, and you have to extinguish desire by following the eightfold path to enlightenment. The third worldview is the Islamic worldview. It's not some, not unlike some theological traditions we discussed last week and beat up on last week. Many streams within the Islamic worldview place a strong emphasis on this idea of fate or destiny. Every unfolding event in history is understood to be the will of Allah. And this is a view shared by ancient pagan understandings uh, from the Nordic and the European traditions. And of course, we see the similar theological traditions in the Calvinistic wing of the church today. This is often criticized as a, a fatalistic view. Someone is fated to suffer and there's no way to avoid suffering. It's fatalism. One famous uh, Islamic story called Death and Terahan illustrates this quite well. A rich, rich man and mighty Persian, Persian once walked in his garden with one of his servants. The servant cried out that he had just encountered death who had threatened him. He begged his master to give him his fastest horse so that he could make haste and flee to Terahan, Tar- which he could reach that same evening. The master consented and the servant galloping off on the horse and returning to his house, the master himself met death and questioned him. Why did you terrify and threaten my servant? I did not threaten him. I only showed surprise in still finding him here when I planned to meet him tonight. And hand said death. It's like a bad bar joke, but it's, it's actually pretty interesting. And the fourth uh, worldview is something that I would call the Star Wars worldview, or if you want to be boring about it, you could call it the dualistic worldview. Worldview. This is the idea that the world is a cosmic battlefield between equal yet opposing forces of good and evil. And the key to which is a balance of both things or an equilibrium in the force. Without said balance, you are bound to suffer. Now, if you're paying attention and you're, uh, you know, trying to put on your, your open-minded hat, you may notice that each worldview has at least some slight shade of the truth in it. But before we move on, notice the commonality each of the four views, the first four views on the chart share. They all presuppose that pain and suffering uh, are a normal, necessary piece of the human experience. So whether you're Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim or a Jedi or a Sith, pain is to be expected. And more than that, each of these views creates space to consider the good that suffering can do in the development of character. Of course, most of us here this evening are, are probably not Hindu or Muslim or or Sith. We fall into a fifth category, at least culturally. The culture many of us have grown up in is tremendously different from each of these four first examples, and it finds its roots in something called naturalism, this idea that human beings, even the world itself, is something of a, a developmental anomaly that came to fruition without any involvement from God or from a higher power whatsoever. This, this whole thing is this insane streak of happy accidents, or as one of my, uh, one of my favorite lyricists puts it, a phenomenal, nominal Nothing. So, and I'm not, I'm not even talking about uh, science or evolution. A great many followers of Jesus believe uh, certain concepts of evolution may be the very means by which God created and developed the world, and, and that's all fine and good. There's always been room in the Christian tradition for that. I'm talking about something that we might call evolution with a, a capital E, more like a worldview, this idea that humanity and, the, and life and the world in which we live are all great, phenomenal, nominal, nothing, an accident, for want of a better way of putting it. Thus, pain and suffering are as devoid of purpose as life itself. You know, the infamous scientific boogeyman Richard Dawkins put it like this The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. And in, a, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom. No design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. This worldview is further compounded in America and in Europe by the historical premise of a nation functioning as something of a social experiment. The idea is that the end goal of life is life itself, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So ask an average American you know, on the street what they think the meaning of life might be, and they might say something about happiness or about, about being happy. What happens to the individual whose ultimate end is happiness when they meet suffering on their happy little road of life? If the carrot that we're chasing after is life or liberty or the pursuit of happiness, how does one understand the destruction of life or liberty or the pursuit of happiness? When life is interrupted by a cancer diagnosis or when someone that you love very much dies. When liberty is silenced by the iron bars of a jail cell or a concentration camp or when freedom is little more than fleeing your home as a refugee to escape civil war. When the pursuit of happiness languishes in the swamp of despair, when when you're very sad, when life becomes an endless panorama of disappointment and heartache and failure, what then is the great purpose of life? And for this reason, sociologists point to this lineup of worldviews, and they condemn the Western secular view as the very worst at dealing with pain and suffering. Because in the Western mind, pain and suffering are at best an interruption to the purpose of life and at worst they become an insurmountable obstacle that snuffs out the very wick of life's essence even with some vague acknowledgement that suffering might improve our character in some way it lacks any mechanism with which to realize it because in the end it becomes about finding new and better ways to avoid suffering so the West is poised to provide you with innumerable methods to stave off the horror of hardship. You know, you have seatbelts and airbags for your car and insurance and flood for, for, for the flood and the fire and vitamins and essential oils for your immune system. And none of those things are bad. I like seatbelts. You should wear them. Um, <laughs> vitamins are okay, I guess. You know, sometimes Abby gives me an essential oil for my headache and it seems to go away. That seems cool. So those things aren't bad. Um... You know, why not mitigate and minimize hardship if we possibly can? I think it's a great idea. But no, the point is, no matter how clever the hiding place, suffering will find us eventually. And what then, you know, mortified, many of us then run to medication or to distractions to name brands and social media for curating image and fighting off the insecurity that cripples us, to um, television or pornography to stave off the loneliness or some relationship or some career goal as our last great hope to find meaning and satisfaction in life. Anything but face suffering head on, the greatest possible moment of your life, and you're off somewhere missing it. See, in the explosion of drug treatment for human sadness over the last few decades, and the exponential growth of mental illness in the U.S., a great controversy has welled up. It's actually quite fascinating. You know, in, in 1980, a psychiatrist called Dr. Robert Spitzer he led this task force that compiled what became the dsm uh, 3 the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, sort of handbook for mental disorders. And Spitzer and his team contributed to this third uh, manual a tremendous amount of new mental disorders um, in order to categorize certain genres of human grief or sadness or anxiety and so on. And it became this turning point in American culture but then years later, in 2007, Spitzer uh, confessed in an interview that he and his team had, quote, medicalized much ordinary human sadness. And in it, he said, we were not interested in understanding the patient's life or why they were suffering from these symptoms. It was If the patient was very sad or anxious or unhappy then it was simply assumed that he or she was suffering from a disorder that needed to be cured rather than from a natural and normal human reaction to certain life conditions that needed to be changed. The growing influence of the DSM was one among many other social factors spreading the harmful cultural belief that much of our everyday suffering is a damaging encumbrance best swiftly removed a belief increasingly trapping us within a worldview that regards all suffering as a purely negative force in our lives. And that's the guy who wrote the manual. And notice that last line in his quote, a belief, a worldview. Of course, neither Dr. Spitzer nor myself are implying that mental disorders are all imaginary. Of course they're not. But interestingly enough, the truth is that suffering is not necessarily purely negative in force or in scope. There is good that can be drawn from suffering. In uh, 1946, a gentleman named Viktor Frankl published a book called Man's Searching for Meaning. Frankl was a, a Jewish neurologist and a psychologist in Vienna who was taken by the SS to Auschwitz, to the death camp, where his wife and his family died screaming in the gas chambers. And Frankl endured years of hell on earth, and at the conclusion of World War II, Frankl, as a Holocaust survival uh, survivor, he, he pioneered something called logotherapy based on his discoveries inside the concentration, concentration camp. To Frankl's estimation, those who persevered the horrors of the Holocaust and the war all the way to survival were not who you think they would be. They weren't the stereotypically tough or the stereotypically strong. They were those who found meaning in their suffering. And Frankl argued that the meaning of life wasn't happiness, as many had assumed, but to live for something greater than yourself, for some kind of meaning. And as such, he argued three methods to discovering the meaning of life. One might be creating a work or a deed, so basically something that you do. Or maybe two is experiencing something or encountering someone, so a relationship of some kind. But then finally, third, Frankl theorized that the way that we choose to experience unavoidable suffering is one of the ways that we find meaning in life. Suffering, for Frankl, is an opportunity to overcome your present circumstances or to move from uh, tragedy to triumph. In his case, this was a concentration camp. Um, And the task, he believed, was to find a way to suffer well. And this, of course, is drastically different Um, than the ordinary take on life in general, let alone pain and suffering, as it is understood in the Western world, in Western secular America. Frankel wrote, "'To the European, "'it's a characteristic of the American culture "'that again and again, "'one is commanded and ordered to be happy. "'But happiness cannot be pursued. "'It must ensue. "'One must have reason to be happy. "'Once the reason is found, however, "'one becomes happy automatically.'" As we see, a human being is not one in pursuit of happiness, but rather in search of a reason to become happy. Last but not least, through actualizing the potential meaning inherent and dormant in a given situation. Now, Viktor Frankl was not a follower of Jesus, but his ideas and his writings, as you, as you read them in particular in that, in that book, um, jump off the page as strikingly in line with the teachings of Jesus and the writers of the Bible. Because time and time again, authors of Scripture emphasize the unique ability of pain and suffering to catalyze growth and maturity. In fact, the Scriptures use this recurring metaphor for pain as a refining fire. It shows up in Job, like we just read, I will be tested and I will come out as gold. But that's not all. In Psalm uh, sixty six for you God tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. In Isaiah See I have refined you, though not as silver, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. And Jeremiah Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. See, I will refine and test them for what else can I do because of the sin of my people? In Zechariah, this third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. The words of Jesus in Mark chapter nine, everyone will be salted with fire. And finally, in first Peter, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus the King from the dead. May result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The point is again and again, the scriptures make the point that suffering can transform character. As fire transforms gold. Pain has this unique ability to to change and to grow and to mature you. Suffering tests you, it reveals what's really inside. And in the end, it can improve you, enrich the value of everything in your life. How? Well, let's talk about that for just a moment before we end. Firstly, pain can deepen your love for God. C.S. Lewis described pain as a megaphone for God to use to a deaf world. And if it hasn't been abundantly clear over these last few weeks, or if you haven't been here, let me reiterate that we believe at Vansity, God is rarely, if ever, responsible for the pain in your life. Evil is not God's will. He does not determine or ordain evil. Even so, it can be a great opportunity to get our attention. Suffering reorients the way that we relate to everything good in our lives by exposing what good things have become God's to us or what loves are out of order on our list of loves. On this, I believe, you know, Buddha was kind of onto something. Suffering does result from desire for better or for worse. But I would argue that it has more to do with our desire for the wrong things or for the right things but in the wrong order. You know, I doubt the problem is that you love your family too much or you love your work too much or you love your dream too much. But it may be that you love God too little. And the improper ordering of loves is a path to inevitable anxiety. I mean, think about it. When God is not ultimate in your life, you will always live in fear because everything else can be taken away. This is why Yoda pleads that we train ourselves to let go of everything we fear to lose. And I want you guys to know that I deliberated deliberated very hard on whether or not to quote from a Star Wars prequel, but there it is. I did it. But even so, Jesus can never be taken away. And to believe this is to cast off the shackles of anxiety. To believe this requires a proper ordering of loves. Because suffering can, when we allow it, strengthen our relationship and our intimacy with God like nothing can in the world it can reorder our loves whether we want it to or not suffering strips us of pretense you know it drives us hopelessly and desperately toward prayer and it reveals God to be the true refuge and comfort that he actually is before we built up all these distractions to inhibit us from him the second way that suffering can grow us is that it can deepen your character this is the idea behind the language of being tested. To imagine, you know, don't imagine like an exam that you get graded for, but imagine like a, a, a metal, uh, a test, the testing of metal, one that works with complex metals, heats them up, and identifies what truly is inside any given metal. The comp- I don't know anything about metal. I read this this week. Um, but in, in suffering, uh, the weaknesses of our character are brought painfully To our attention, because suffering kind of becomes these cruel hands that wring us like a sponge, and the very worst of us will flood out like this foul, murky water, with all our ugly, hidden stuff exposed, and we've no means of disguising the truth, and often no strength left to fake it. And all that's left is to choose to give up or else choose to take the very hard road toward change. And suffering itself is often entirely beyond our control. But our response is always entirely within our control. And of course, we see this paradigm in Job, including the entire spectrum of improper responses. Blame God. Blame people. God is not just. God did this to me. But eventually, in the story of Job, that gives way to repentance in the end. And it's there that Job finally moves forward in his story. Suffering can also deepen your humility and your empathy. Because pain inevitably strips us of pride. It reminds us of how very little falls within the microscopic dominion of our own control. And in relinquishing our desperate pursuit to control the things that we cannot control, we become humbled. You're not in control. You never were. All this religion, religion of self-help is an illusion. You have to know Not fear, but know that one day you're going to die and that suffering will happen sometime on the way. This is deeply humbling, in a good way. It enables us to be of use to others who suffer because those who have suffered very little um, are often trite or cliche or they become very impatient with people that are in pain. But having been there yourself changes everything. I think of uh, 2 Corinthians in which Paul writes, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble. One great meaning that we take in our suffering is knowing that though God does not orchestrate it, he can subvert the calamity and pain that he does not will into existence and he can use it to benefit others and he can snatch a victory from the hands of the enemy by using it For something good. God is infinitely intelligent and creative in that way. And and how far more wonderful the concept of a God capable of taking evil that he does not cause and somehow still using it for good than the idea of a God who's so limited in his scope that he needs to pull every string just to get his way. Finally, suffering can benefit us by deepening our joy, ironically. Pain often reveals what we take for granted. It exposes the endless depth of our entitlement in life. And believe me, you're all very entitled. <laughs> I am infinitely, infinitely entitled. But strip away of the things that we love, and what happens in our pain is this great revival of appreciation. For life. Even things like that cup of coffee that you get to drink in the morning or the groceries that you have in the refrigerator or the roof over your head or the ones that you love. I mean, when I woke up to the, the news of the horror that happened in, uh, in Florida just this, you know, this morning or last night or whatever, there's this immediate sense of like, man, I, I can't believe, why, what is the the weirdness of that's not me, I've never been in a mass shooting. No one's ever fired anything at me that I know of. The person that I, people that I love most are still right here around me. And the suffering of someone else somehow bolsters my appreciation for the things that I know and love. A sense of loss cultivates gratitude. And after we survive the night of suffering, the next morning, your breakfast tastes better than any meal that you've ever had. And somehow, for all our pain, we become more joyful than before we were hurt. Suffering can do all these things, but not necessarily. You know, no amount of pain will accomplish these things in us automatically. Suffering can either form or destroy us. You know, think of the, the concept as the same sun that melts wax Hardens clay. One person endures the death of a parent or a divorce or cancer or war, and they come out on the other side deeply connected to God and humble and at peace and kind and more mature than they've ever been in their whole lives. Another person goes through the same things and they come out angry and bitter and depressed and addicted and they never regain their traction in life. So much depends on how we suffer. And to end tonight, I just have a few thoughts. And first is uh, five warnings for when the pain inevitably finds you. The first warning is isolation. To suffer alone is a disastrous thing. You feel as though your pain is unique and it's unfathomable. It isn't. So do not go it alone or it can destroy you. The second risk is narcissism. Those who are in pain, in great pain, often without even knowing it, become self-obsessed and their own pain is all that they can see. The third warning is guilt and shame. When suffering stems from mistakes that you've made in particular, guilt can absolutely bury you. Anger, you know, the rage against God, against yourself, against other people, it can overwhelm you with malice and bitterness and contempt. And finally, temptation. You know, the the emotionally drained are weak and easy prey for temptation. That extra glass of wine or the wandering internet searches or the time alone with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or the, the short fuse that you have with the people that you love, the irritability, the rash decisions that you make. To go to war with isolation and with narcissism, guilt and shame, anger and temptation, we have to pursue their antonyms. The first is community. You have to let people in, family and friends, your community, your church. You process your pain with God and with friends and family and community, not in isolation. You know, hopefully your friends are better than Job's and they won't say, it must be your fault, <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me. The pages of the New Testament are packed with story after story after story of followers of Jesus facing profound suffering and persecution. And the biblical authors, they rarely directly remind them that uh, the disciples should cling to their communities because they presuppose there is no other way to follow Jesus. Jesus. The writings themselves are primarily directed at communities rather than at individuals. And even when they are directed at individuals, it's it's for the good of some community. The point is that the inevitability of suffering is one reason why following Jesus is never done in isolation, but always through the shared life of the people of God. At City, that looks like a missional community, a small group of people, imperfect in every way, believe me, that that sit around and they share food together and they share life together and they get mad at each other and they suffer together and they go through the death of a family member together and they go through problems in a marriage together and they support one another and they babysit and they make food. It's all about sharing life, whatever that means. And it also looks like the larger family of the church to come together in one place and lament together as a people, mourn together as a people, celebrate together as a people. The second way we go to war with uh, the improper ways of dealing with suffering is through prayer. And I don't mean to bow yourself up and white-knuckle it and like say your prayers, but I mean lament to God the good and the bad and the ugly, the full depth of emotion without censorship of any kind. Go to the place of pain and meet God there. We spent a great deal of time on this earlier in the series uh, uh, with Job. The idea of lamenting to God, not just about God, not just writing a blog about God or in the assumed privacy of your own imagination. Even when presented with Job's horrible theology, God honors Job's frustration and he validates the fact that he was willing to go through that in God's presence, even with brutal honesty. The third, third way you uh, battle Improper ways to suffer is through health, simply. I mean, this sounds like a given, but honestly, how easy it is to overlook when you are in pain. Embrace rhythms and rituals that make for a life well-lived, you know? Sleep well, exercise, eat healthy, take care of your body when your soul is a mess, and care for the soul with things like prayer and with reading and with Sabbath and with rest and with church and with worship. You are more than just a body and you're more than just a soul, but you're not less than either of those things. You're, you're created as a holistic, corporeal, and spiritual being, meaning, meaning your mind is you and your, your spirit is you, your body is you. And to respect the temple of God's spirit, God's very spirit dwells in you, then to respect that temple... Um, means holistic health, caring for every aspect of who you are. And Jesus is in the habit of bringing salvation and redemption to not just souls, but to minds and to bodies as well. Care for all of those things. Next is this idea of living in the moment. And it sounds like a terrible cliche, but honestly, it's really as simple as that. It it often takes time to run that full spectrum of emotions and uh, embrace that journey there's no need to rush from immediate pain to immediate uh, comfort and often you just can't get from one to the other you need to experience the full range of emotions to be an emotionally healthy person um, savor the simple things you know turn every cup of coffee or every hug or every good song or every happy conversation into something that's filled with gratitude and with praise be aware of the good all around you and finally the last thing is hope this idea of obstinately refusing to relinquish your grip on hope. And I'm not talking about flimsy optimism like, oh, maybe tomorrow is going to be great. But hope, the, the grounded expectation of coming good based on the character of God. A hope believing that though God is not responsible for evil, he can use it for good somehow. He does it all the time. That Jesus, the, the Spirit of God, your salvation itself are not things that can be taken from you and that the very best is still yet to come. The resurrection, the great healing of the cosmos are all still on the horizon and we will see the coming of the kingdom even in glimpses in the here and now. And as, I, as we make our way through these highs and lows of life, often very clumsily, remember existence Is often suffering. Yes, this can be true, but so are these words of Jesus. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So let's pray.